whether they're taking care of our kids right now or filming us or they seated you this morning, even the people that put out the communion and the people that bring our tables up. Thank you. I've been told that these tables are incredibly heavy. So anytime you see somebody bring these up, just know that these are muscle men in our midst. So good to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Kent. I will probably need that. So good to be here this morning. I'm just, if you weren't here for the opening, I'm just struck about what a privilege it is to, to be your pastor. And uh, really, it's a privilege for every one of us to have a part to play in the kingdom, isn't it? I think that's uh, worth thinking about, worth meditating on. Um, because the places that he's given us, whatever it is, whether we think it's big or little, in his kingdom are places of privilege and it's a joy to do life together with you. So I'm just excited that you're here this morning. I know that God has something for us. If he hasn't already changed your life uh, in his presence, he's going to change our lives by his word. And, and I'm excited for that. I'm excited for that. So be excited with me. Amen. I want you to think back to when you were a child and you had some of these uh, interactions. Maybe it was about apologizing, maybe a fight that you had with your siblings. And you remember standing there and your parents, one of your parents or both of them saying, you need to apologize to each other and you're just like, I'm, you go first. Do you remember that? Like we're always wanting somebody else to go first, most of us in our lives. Maybe it's a dare, like, hey, I dare you to do this. Well, if you do it, then I'll do it. Uh, maybe it has something uh, to do with um, our marriage roles. Right? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the man that God called me to be, to love you like Christ loved the church and lay my life down for you. But why don't you start by honoring me first? <laughs> Some of you I hear from the laughter have tried that before. Or how about the other way around? I'll honor you when you lay your life down for me. We're always asking people to go first. And it often happens literally with apologies. Like we, maybe that was something that little kids did, but let's bring it into our lives right now. You've probably done that in your marriage. I can't say that I'm not guilty of that. Like waiting for the other, I'll say sorry when she says sorry. She just walked in, so I'm going to have to be careful how I do this. <laughs> <laughs> so we wait oftentimes for the other person to go ahead and say sorry first and we're waiting oftentimes for the apology that we want did you know that there are apology languages just like there's love languages the five love languages touch words of affirmation gifts quality time and acts of service there's also apology languages Meaning we like to give and receive apologies in certain ways. And sometimes somebody else is saying sorry and it just misses us because we're not lined up for that kind of apology. Like for me, if you want to apologize to me, you just have to look me straight in the eye and actually mean what you say and ask for forgiveness. And I'm good. That's my apology language. My wife's apology language, and this is where I might get into trouble later. <laughs> my wife's apology language, and we're just discovering this, her apology language is making restitution. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but like, if I want to really say I'm, I'm sorry to my wife, I will do something to demonstrate to make it right. To not just say it, but to do it. And you realize like, if, if one person wants something done right and the other person just wants the words, if she wants to apologize to me and she's making it right and she doesn't say anything, I don't think she's apologized. Right? Or if I'm trying to apologize to her and I keep saying words, words mean nothing to her. She's like, do something about it. And so we're always waiting sometimes for the other person to go first in that apology, and maybe they have already. 
We always want people to go first. And the same, uh, or, and what we need to understand from that is the mature people go first. Whether it's an apology or in a dare, or maybe mature people don't do dares, or in just leading something in our lives that we ought to do, mature people are willing to go first. Right? The same is true with God. We're going through a series on covenant where we're talking about how God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And we're going to look at this morning how God goes first in the covenant. He always has. As we looked at Adam and Eve, we saw that he had had authority in the earth because he made it. And he wanted to give it to Adam and Eve in such a way that they extended his authority throughout the earth. And we saw that, that God was going to redeem the way that we mess it up through the seed of Adam and through the seed of Eve specifically. We saw in Noah how God continues his covenant in the earth and judging sin. And oftentimes we don't think of that as a good way to, keep, to, to see his covenant walked out. But when God judges sin and removes the evil from, from our lives, he's doing us a service. And he's fulfilling his promise to keep covenant with people so that in removing sin, seed is protected and seed is given an opportunity to grow into the place as human beings where his authority is extended and ultimately it's done through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how God gets more specific in his covenant making and his covenant keeping with Abraham. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to jump right in. Genesis chapter 15. And because it's a short chapter, we're going to read the whole thing. Is that all right? Great, thank you. I love it. You guys are very interactive this morning. That makes it much easier to talk. Genesis chapter 15 says this, Sometime later the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram. And you're going to hear me refer to Abram and Abraham. He changes his name to Abraham a little bit later, but right now it's Abram. And he says to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? And since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you'll have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him, and he killed them. And then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. And some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. And as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a terrifying darkness came over him, and the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. And as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. And after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. 
And so the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, not the Parasites, the Perizzites, <laughs> the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. That was pretty good, wasn't it? All the ites. God, as we look at your word in Genesis 15, we pray that we would understand what you're saying, not only to Abraham, but to us. That you would demonstrate to us through your word that you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and that you invite us into this covenant and show us how to live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So looking at Genesis 15, what do we understand about covenant? This covenant-making, this covenant-keeping God. The first is this, that God always goes first. God always goes first. God is the initiator of the covenant with Abraham. When God comes to meet with us, he is the initiator of the covenant. It says in the scripture that sometime later, God came and spoke to him in a vision. This is a, a language that is used to describe a prophetic utterance. See, God has the prophetic prerogative in our lives. What does that mean? That means God has a vision for your life and for my life, and he gets to tell us what it looks like. That any time that we interact with him, we are interacting with him, and it's not just God coming and saying, I'm God, you have to worship me. He comes to us and he says, listen, I want you to live out of my vision for your life. As we read about God, as we read about his covenants, as we read the way that he works with us, we need to understand that these are not just things that are for the people that he spoke them to, but they're for us. And it's a prophetic vision. It helps us understand who he is and what he wants for our lives. He's speaking prophetically to us. So this morning, as we hear and read God's word and see what it means, we need to understand there's, there's a, a, a prophetic nature to this where he's saying, this isn't yet what is, but I'm going to tell you what is coming. How many of you know it's powerful to receive a prophetic word from God? And especially when it's not reality currently. He's talking to us about what he wants to give us. But here's the problem. Oftentimes we miss his prophetic word because just like Abraham, we're in fear. God says to Abraham, do not fear. Why? Just for no reason? No, because oftentimes we are afraid of what God's going to speak to us. I mean, there's a sense that God is awesome and powerful and there's a fear of the Lord and that's a powerful thing and a, and a good thing. And we're going to talk about fear in a, li a little bit later in this sermon and how powerful in a good way that can be. But God does not want us to fear, although oftentimes we fear what he's going to ask us to do or what he's going to say to us. How many of you have ever been afraid of God speaking to you? You're like, if, if I let him talk to me clear, he might say some stuff I don't want to hear. Right? And so we run away from this. This is an opportunity not only to say I'm about to speak to you what my prophetic future is, but I'm inviting you into this in a way that you don't have to fear. We do not have to fear the voice of the Lord. In fact, we don't have to fear the covenants of God either. And one of the reasons we don't have to fear them is because God goes first. He's willing to take the initiative because he is the mature one in it and he is willing to back up his word. And we're going to see that this morning. But Abraham responds to God's message by saying, what good are your blessings? Because Abraham says to him, I will protect you and your reward will be great. And Abraham says, well, what good are your blessings without a son? Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever get, promised your kids something good and they go into, like, negotiation mode? They're like a lawyer. Like, well, what else do I get? Well, give me the specifics on that because I need to know what you're promising. Was this a case of Abraham saying to God, wait a minute, hold up, like, this is how I want it. 
He was saying, Eleazar, who's not even my own son, is going to inherit everything. What good are your promises? Now, it wasn't like Eleazar wasn't somebody who was mostly related to Abraham. He wasn't a blood relative, but he was a servant born into his house. This was somebody who had walked with Abraham all his life. And it would have been legitimate for Abraham to adopt him in and give him all of the blessings. But it would have been a short change of what God wanted to do. And the truth is this. We do not have to short change God on his promises. We don't have to try to figure out how to make God's word true. God will make his word true. In fact, in verse 4, God says to Abraham, your servant will not be your heir. Like, stop thinking that way. Now, this wasn't the last time that Abraham tried to do it in his own strength. In fact, the very next chapter, he tries to fulfill the promise through his own works. And it never turns out well for us when we do that. I'm not saying that we don't have to respond in faith because we'll talk about that as well. But here's the thing. We don't have to shortchange God in doing the miraculous. When God promises to do something in our lives, He will do it. And most often it's miraculous and it's something that we never really anticipated in the first place. What that encourages us to do is to keep our sense of wonder. He may do things in ways we would never see or never anticipate Him doing. So was this a case of just Abraham wanting his own way? No, this was a case of God inviting Abraham into relationship. He was willing to talk with Abraham about what this looks like. Abraham was saying, God, you've given me this promise, but what does it really mean? What does that mean to us? God's not afraid of us saying, God, what do you mean when he gives us a prophetic vision for our lives? It's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to walk that out with them, to ask questions and to process through. In fact, Jewish people are very famous for the way that they learn. They learn by asking questions. In fact, we're coming up on a Seder meal. And during that Seder meal, they would give questions to the kids to ask, which draws out the nature of what is happening. This is a very Jewish way of responding to God right from the very beginning of them becoming a unique people, the people of Abraham. God invites us into relationship with Him in covenant where we get to ask questions about what He wants to do with it. Because the truth is this, the promise that God had given him was not specific. If you look in Genesis chapter 12, you see the first bit of that promise coming. In fact, God is reiterating the covenant. He's making covenant with Abraham around these promises in chapter 15, but chapter 12 was where these promises were first made. Let's read it. Chapter 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, I'm sorry, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. See, what what Abraham was dealing with here was a gap between the initial promise and the covenant that was made. Abraham was saying, okay, God, you gave me these promises. You said that you would grow me into a great nation. But there wasn't a specific promise of children. He could have grown him into a great nation through his people, maybe. But Abraham was saying, listen, I really desire, and I think, God, you do too. What does it look like to specifically walk this out? Would you do it through my actual own children? And God promised him that he would do it this way. It was an invitation, again, to to Abraham to process with God what was in his heart. And this blessing that he gave him in chapter 12 was confirmed in the covenant of chapter 15. What were the covenant promises? In chapter 12, it was land, a great nation, and to be blessed and to be a blessing. 
Also notice that it was an invitation to other people who are not part of this special family of God to be blessed as well. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, but there was access. That was a prophetic utterance that through Jesus that would happen, but it was also an invitation of people to be blessed even in the immediate because he says, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever treats you with contempt, I will not bless. And so there's this invitation not just for God to walk with one certain group of people or one family, but for everybody to watch what happened and to see how God wants to bless everybody. That was the covenant promises in chapter 12. In chapter 15, here's what the promises look like. It's very similar, just in a different order. It's the promise of blessing and redemption. He comes to him in the beginning of 15. He says, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. I love the New Living Translation mostly, but this is one of the places where I don't like the translation as much. It doesn't capture really what God is saying in the deepest sense of it, or not the fullest sense. Here's what what other translation says. The Lord says, I am your shield, and I am your great reward. That's different. It's a little bit different than I'll protect you, and your reward will be great. That sounds good, right? Those sounds like blessings. How many of you would like the protection of God and a great reward from God? That'd be great. But how many of you know it's even different when God says, I am your shield, and I am your great reward? See, we, do, we can't mix up the blessings of God with the blessing of God Himself in our lives. And He says, listen, I'm going to bless you by My presence. I am going to bless you with My very own protection. I am going to surround you. It's a story of redemption. In fact, He tells them, you're going to be redeemed from slavery. And we, it's important that we understand these are the promises of God even though we might see them far off. He promised him a blessing and redemption. He, almost pro- he also promised him descendants. And he promised him descendants through his own line, through his own children. He promised him seed. And I think that's interesting to see the continuum of God's promises all throughout the covenants that he makes because he's promising over and over and over again, I'm going to accomplish my work through your seed. He promised it to Eve He promised it to Abraham, and he promised it to David, and we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He also promised him land. He said, I'm going to give it all to you, all this land. And he says, these are the borders of the land. It wasn't like just, like I'm going to bring you to a nice place. He said, literally, here's the physical dimensions of where I'm going to bless you, or what I'm going to bless you with. God not only made promises, but he also made demonstration that he would back up his word. The second part here is that God would cut covenant. He was going to cut covenant with us. So in covenant, God goes first. The covenant has promises. Part three, God cuts covenant. What does it mean to cut covenant? This this unusual thing that we read about here is very interesting. Because it's not the first time we're told in ancient cultures that this is how covenant would be ratified. God asks Abraham to get some animals to cut them in half. And then he says, just hold up there. And this was an ancient practice when you would make an agreement with somebody. You would cut animals in half. And it wasn't just like, hey, I promise to do this. It was, listen, we're going to make this so serious that this is, we're going to cut the animals in half. And we're going to 
walk through them, not we. In fact, what it looked like in the ancient times was that they would make the lesser person in that contract or that covenant walk through the animals. And what it meant was this, that I recognize if I don't keep up my end of the bargain as the lesser party in this, that this is what will happen to me if I break my promise, if I break covenant. It was a serious thing. It was, I'm putting my life on the line for this promise. But what's incredible here is God goes first and that he's the one who walks between. God is willing to put himself on the line for the covenants that he makes with us. In every other covenant, in every other religion, people have to perform for God. In this covenant, God says, I am willing to do the work for this covenant to be established. And I'm putting myself in the middle of it. In fact, this was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do in going first and shedding his blood to bring us into covenant with the Father. Covenant is always confirmed in blood. I don't want to get too graphic here, but uh, the, the, the covenant for Adam and Eve was to multiply and fill the earth, right? We don't think that that's necessarily a blood covenant, but two people coming together for the first time in a way that multiplies the earth is a blood covenant. Are we clear? Do I need to get more graphic? Okay. Noah had a blood covenant. He, the Lord gave him animals to sacrifice. And he sacrificed them and it, it, God confirmed the covenant with him. Moses had blood that covered the doorpost. So the lamb was sacrificed for that covenant. Even the covenant with David, although we don't read about blood when God makes a covenant with David, what does he say? He says, a, a ancestor of yours will always sit on the throne of David. What gives Jesus the right to sit on that throne forever? The blood that he shed for you and me. Covenant is always cut with blood. And God goes first in this. And in this, he binds himself to us. But notice, in this moment, in this covenant, there was nothing that Abraham had to do to bind himself to God. God came, God initiated, God went first, God bound himself to us. Now, there is a sign of the covenant that Abraham has later. In chapter 17, it's circumcision. Do I need to get more graphic about what that is? That's a, that's a blood sign that Abraham carries the covenant. God went to the, to the most intimate and deepest place for the heart of Abraham so that we, would, we could walk and understand that covenant. Now, don't get too uncomfortable here, but I want to tell you something. You and I have been cut into the covenant as well. Now, Scripture uses other words about cutting, and Scripture talks about the circumcision of our heart, but I specifically want to talk about how we've been brought into the covenant using a word that talks about cutting. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, we're going to read uh, verses 17 and 23 now, and then we're going to skip forward a few verses in a minute. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, it says this, but some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off, and you Gentiles who are branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of, God, of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if the Lord did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. 
But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they'll be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. We are cut into the covenant through grafting. Grafting is an agricultural term where you would take a root stock of some tree and you would take another piece or a branch of a tree that bears better fruit than the root stock and you would put that branch into the root by cutting the outer bark and a little bit into the flesh, sticking that branch in, wrapping it up, and then it would grow really good fruit that would have the nourishment of a root. So in other words, what, what they do is uh, the Macintosh apples that you eat. How many of you like Macintosh apples? How many of you, that's, that's your joint, that's your apple? Not many people. They used to be it. Like, that was the standard of apple. I'm not a big Macintosh fan. I think they're mushy and mealy. I want something that's crisp and pops in my mouth and like a Zestar or a Honeycrisp. Some of you are with me on that. But here, let me explain something about Macintosh apples. Do you know why they call them Macintosh apples? Because they came from the Macintosh farm in Canada. There was a tree that was kind of growing wild. They don't know how it was planted or when it got there that they found had really good apples. And they're like, hey, we want to take these really good Macintosh apples and we want to spread them all around the world. And they did that through grafting. So they would cut a piece of the tree. They would grow it on a Macintosh or on, on a different rootstock, but you would get Macintosh apples. It didn't matter what the apple tree root was. It mattered what the piece was that went into the tree. In fact, it's so clear that the same uh, DNA that is in that apple that you eat now is the same DNA that was in the original Macintosh apple. They're all grafting. They're all cuttings from that original tree. Isn't that wild? I think it's incredibly wild. But here's the interesting part about being grafted in. We share from the rich nourishment of the root, but we lose our individual DNA. God is so good that He's not just saying that we're grafted in and we're just benefiting only. He's saying we are literally part of one new man. Ephesians chapter 2, 14-15 says, Christ has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in His own body on the cross, He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law and its commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in Himself one new people from two groups. God is bringing us together. And His plan and His purpose isn't just that you and I replace Jewish people as Gentiles, but that He's also going to, like we read already in Romans, He's going to graft His people back in. And it will be a natural grafting. And it will be glorious. And it will be wonderful. Why? Because God is faithful to His covenants. He has not abandoned His people. He has not abandoned the children of Abraham. He has just brought us into the privilege of that covenant. Now here's a couple other uh, Additional principles of covenant. Four, covenant always has responsibility. Always has responsibility. God is committed long-term to his covenants with us. But here's what he told Abraham, Abram as he was making the covenant with them. In fact, in verse uh, 11, I think it is. Sorry, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure. Be sure of what? Be sure that it's not going to look very good for about 400 years. He says, you can be sure that your, your descendants will be slaves and will be oppressed and foreigners in a land. What is God saying? He's saying, listen, the, I am taking responsibility to do this from generation to generation to generation, but you can be sure there is going to be a delay as far as you see it. 
Abraham, don't worry, you're going you're gonna to die in an old age, you're going to be buried in this place, but I want you to know that I'm going to continue my promises of covenant to you and to your descendants, even when it looks impossible, even when it's been 400 years, even when your people are slaves and foreigners in a land that's not the land that I promised you, I am going to be faithful to my covenant to you. Here, understand this, God is faithful to his covenants. God's faithful to his covenant with you, even in delay. Even when it looks like everything is all wrapped up in slavery. Even when it looks like every hope has been lost. God is faithful to his covenant promises to us. And it's so good to know that. It's so good to rest our hearts in that because his responsibility and his willingness and his word always is that he will take responsibility and he will carry them out long term. Here's what our responsibility is. The primary responsibility that we have in response to God's covenant with us is faith. At this point, Abraham wasn't required to do anything. Now, later there was a response of faith Faith always, real faith always turns into action. Always. We can't believe something that we don't do. In fact, you can tell me all day long what you believe, but I won't believe you until I see what you do. We don't do what we don't believe. We can say we believe it, but if it's not a regular practice, then it's not really our belief. And so, the, but here's the great news. The primary responsibility, the very first thing that we get to do, the, the responsibility that we have in covenant with God is to believe God. That he really is who he says he is. That he's really going to do what he said he's going to do. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, there's just a real kind of practical example of this. Jesus is talking, and he tells the uh, story <clears throat> of the persistent widow. And he basically is telling a story about a woman who won't, who won't leave a judge alone until she gets what she needs from him. And what he's saying is this. The righteous judge sorry, the unrighteous judge was willing to give her what she wanted. But he says, I'm a righteous judge. You can trust me. Believe me and come after me for the promises. And then he talked to people who believed that they had confidence in their own righteousness. And he says, listen, you can't accomplish this. See, oftentimes when God comes and makes covenant with us, makes promises with us, we have enough garbage still left in us that we try to make it happen on our own. Abraham did that in the very next chapter, in chapter 16. But we don't have to in our own righteousness. And the truth is, we can't fulfill our promises. How many of you are glad that, you, that God is so good to fulfill his pro- end of the bargain? Because we can't. And then he says this. In chapter 18, verse 15, he tells the, the account of blessing the children. And he says this. Verse 16, let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. We ought to just believe, like children, 
that God is who he says he is. Number five, covenant attracts attention. God is very generous with his covenants. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. How many of you know sometimes blessing is a burden? How many of you would not really, if let's say I was going to offer you uh, the ability to win the lottery and have $700 million. How many of you would take me up on that? Righteously, you don't have to buy the ticket, relax. <laughs> how about this? How about just, I have $700 million, I want to give it to you. How many, how many of you would like that $700 million? How many of you would be more comfortable if I gave you a choice of everybody knowing about it or nobody knowing about it? You'd rather have nobody know about it, right? Because everybody's going to get, if I had $700 million, you wouldn't leave me alone. I wouldn't tell you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Blessing invites attention. Covenant attracts attention. God is generous with his covenant. And sometimes, even as the people of God, we're not really willing to walk with that blessing because we don't want other people to see it. It's been a, it's been a, um, a burden for the people of Israel to carry. Why is there such a hatred for the Jewish people? Because ain't nobody like it when somebody else says, I'm God's favorite. You didn't like it when you were kids. And your, your sibling came and said, I'm mom and dad's favorite. That offended you. This week, I was serving chips to my niece and to my, my four-year-old. They wanted chips for a snack. And so, you know, I just reached in the bag and took a handful out and put it on the plate and took a handful out and put it on the plate. Immediately, my four-year-old goes, why does she get more chips than me? <laughs> we're really good at saying, why are you blessed? In fact, let me, let me make it more plain for adults. How many of you have gotten a fish fry recently? Because it's Lent, right? They're everywhere. They're delicious. But how many of you always feel like you get the smallest piece of fish <laughs> that comes to the table? How come they're blessed? Blessing and covenant invites and attracts attention. God literally said, I'm not only going to bless, this wasn't like a spiritual blessing. God said, I'm literally going to bless you. Here's the land you're going to get. And he says, I'm going to have to kick some people out. Their wickedness has not gotten to the place where I'm ready to kick them out yet, so you're going to have to wait. But God was going to give them someone else's land. That was a problem. That attracted attention. But listen, this attracting of attention is part of God's plan. Let me kind of flip the script for us and tell you what it means for you and I. Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, right before what we read in Romans before. Paul says this to the Romans, I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who are dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs are holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because of the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. Paul is hoping that you and I, living with the blessing of God out of covenant as Gentiles, would make the people of God, the Israelites, jealous so that they would want that too and would enter back into it. God is still faithful to his people all the way around. But here's the question. Would people be able to identify you and me by the blessing of covenant that we carry? By our identity as covenant people? Would our identity produce jealousy in others? Sometimes we're not willing to walk around with that right on our sleeve. 
Because we're afraid of what, what it will cost us. We're afraid of what it looks like to walk in that blessing, in that anointing, and in that covenant. Something that I struggle with. This week I was in an elevator. And I know you're supposed to social distance, right? You don't use elevators with people that aren't part of your family or your pot or whatever. So I go into the elevator. It's me and my daughter. And we think we're good. And we, you, know, you walk in and then you turn around. Everybody turns around and faces the door, right? And this woman walked in behind us. Now, it was a fairly big elevator, but still, I had the choice. Like, what do I do with this? Do I say, hey, excuse me, like, you need to leave. We are here first. Or do I walk out? But this woman walked in, and she had a walker. So I wasn't going to kick the walker lady out. And I wasn't going to be the jerk that was like, oh, you're dirty. You have a walker and walk out. So we stayed on the elevator. And it's, it was a slow elevator, like a really slow elevator. So there was a lot of time to talk. And we talked. She was very nice. But then I realized something as I was walking out. I didn't offer to pray for her for healing. I know the God that heals. I've seen the God that heals heal. I carry part of that as the blessing of God in my life. And yet it wasn't wasn't right out in front. Why is that? It's an uncomfortable question. Would we be identified by the blessing of God and the covenant of God in our lives? How many of you know that healing is part of the covenant of blessing that we have? Amen. So should that be out in front? There's a lot of amens that was part of it, but should it be out in front? Yes. Healing, salvation, deliverance, wholeness. But being in the covenant is not the only responsibility. Part six, and this is where we're going to end this morning, if the worship team would come. Covenant is a serious thing. Now, <clears throat> there used to be a sign out in our lobby as you were walking into the, to this worship center. And I forget exactly what the words were, but it was basically like, you better watch out. I mean, that's why I took it as a kid. Like, you're entering holy ground. And now I get that. Because here's the thing. We can swing a bunch of different ways when it comes to God. When it comes to walking in covenant with Him. You know, some would look at, look at this church and say, you guys have swung a little too casual. Why is the pastor preaching in a hoodie? Why does he have jeans on? Like, that's, you're approaching the covenant of God too casually. Well, one of the reasons why is this is the new, new covenant gear. So if you're interested in getting it, get your name on the waiting list because we got a bunch and we're getting ready to, you're going to see it all around. Now, we could also swing the other way where everybody has to wear a suit and tie and we all walk around somber about the blood of Jesus in our lives. Now, I think we ought to be lighthearted people and I think we ought to be solemn people. I think we ought to carry both. We ought to carry the weightiness of what God has done with, for us in covenant with Him, but we also ought to carry the lightheartedness of a people that are free, who have been set free by Him. And all of that reflects His goodness and His glory. But it's a serious thing. It wasn't like when God asked Abraham to cut the animals in half that he was, it was like, and and God, he saw God go through as a fire pot and a torch, a flame, that that was just some, I had bad goat before I fell asleep dream. This was God saying, this is a serious thing. And again, he's willing to take the seriousness on for himself. But if you look at Romans chapter 11, we, we read part of it already, but I want to highlight it again. Romans 11, 20, actually 19 through 22, it says this. Well, you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me, 
Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there, so you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. That's not a fear of God. That's a fear of our failing to keep up our end of the bargain, which is to believe. Our end of the covenant is to believe. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. How about that for a gospel message? Romans says God is both kind and severe. This is a serious thing. How many of you know when God asked Abraham to enter into that covenant, he didn't require anything of him, but later he said this will be the sign circumcision. That's a serious deal. And it wasn't just like, hey Abraham, put this necklace on and when you wear it, everyone will know that you're, you're, a, Jesus, you're a, a, it wouldn't be Jesus freak, it wouldn't be a Jew, it would be, you're a covenant, you've got covenant with me. He didn't have a covenant necklace. He went to the most intimate part as a symbol. Why? Because God's not after us how we dress and God's not after the frivolous things. God's after our heart. And He wants in our hearts us to take seriously what He's doing. The covenant that He's brought us into. There's no sloppy grace here. What is he serious about? He's serious about himself being our reward. It's not about a name it and claim it, prosperity, I get what I want, gospel. It's about the Lord himself being our shield and our reward. And if that's not enough for us, then we've misunderstood how good he is in the covenant he's invited us into in Jesus. Because he is our reward. And scripture tells us, Hebrews eleven six that he rewards those who come after him who seek Him. We're going to celebrate that this morning with communion. And we, we celebrate an open communion here, which simply means this. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're welcome to participate with us. Has anybody not received their bread and their juice packet? If you haven't, just raise your hand. There's some ushers that have some. They're going to bring them around to you right now. I just want to remind you it's easiest if you open the bread first. But these elements are not just snack because it's the 11 service, it's afternoon and we're all hungry. It's not just a ceremony that we go through because it somehow infers grace upon us. This is something that we do in obedience to the command of Jesus to remember what He did for us to bring us into covenant. It takes us back to that moment that He was with His disciples and He took what were symbols of the covenant that God made with the people and with Moses. And he said, I want to redefine those symbols for you. He said, this, this bread represents my body, which is given for you, which is broken for you. Scripture tells us by his stripes we're healed. He was broken for us to bring us into covenant. He took responsibility for that. He said, this juice represents a covenant, a new covenant that's established in His blood. We're going to talk about a new and better covenant as we go through this series. We're we're celebrating the, the blood that was shed and the body that was broken for us to come into covenant with Him. 
He paid the price. He made a way so we, we didn't have to. Because the truth is, we couldn't. And that's worth celebrating and remembering. Jesus, we thank you for your body that you gave. The body that was broken for us, that was pierced for our transgressions. The stripes that you took so that we could be healed. And we thank you and we remember the blessing of your blood that was shed to bring us into a new and to a better covenant. That you established it in your blood. We thank you for the, these, this bread and this cup that represent that. We remember it and we celebrate and declare that you are coming again. You are faithful to your covenant promises to your people. In Jesus' name. Let's eat and drink together. And then when you're done, if you'd stand, we're going to sing.